recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 9th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We'll be on the road for the next two weeks. We'll be in um, Biloxi, Mississippi, Central Louisiana, and Northwest Arkansas. If anybody along the way would like to see us, please drop an email to info at org and let us know. And we'll try to um, do our best to make accommodations. I don't know um, which route we will be taking to come home yet. We will probably be cutting across northern Arkansas and heading south somewhere from there. This is our um, second presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. I think that um, I'm probably going to introduce some ideas here tonight about this chapter 2, especially of Ephesians, that haven't really been heard in Christian identity. I just haven't had the, um, the opportunity to do such an essay or such a presentation before. They're not major groundbreaking things, but there's a few new things here. Tonight's, um, tonight's program, tonight's presentation is subtitled, The Foundation of the Prophets. The um, denominational churches just love to claim that they're New Testament Christians and follow the apostles. In truth, none of them follow the apostles. If they followed the apostles, they'd realize that the apostles were consistently quoting the prophets in prophecies regarding the ancient children of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul attests here in the end of Ephesians chapter 2 that the body of Christ is founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If you don't have both, you don't have Christianity. It's that simple. Opening our presentation of this epistle to the Ephesians, we saw Paul of Tarsus begin to describe the purpose of the will of Yahweh God in relation to his plan for the ages, that he has had a particular people who were chosen from the foundation of the society, who were preordained for the position of sons of God. Because of that, preordination or predestination, in Christ, these particular people have redemption and the dismissal of their transgressions. Paul then asserted that with this understanding, the mystery of the will of God had been made known, and that through that redemption, those same people have obtained an inheritance for which they were preordained according to the purpose of God and in accordance with the design of the will of God. Paul then explained that this is all relevant to these particular people who before 
had expectation in the Christ and accepting the gospel that those same people among whom were the Ephesians had been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of the possession in praise of his honor. Examining all of the oracles of Yahweh God in the Old Testament, which relate to the things which Paul had said in the opening verses of this epistle, we may find the following. By the word of Yahweh, only the ancient children of Israel were ever admitted to be the children of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 14.1 is one example. And by the word of Yahweh, only the ancient children of Israel were ever considered to be the chosen of Yahweh. Psalm 105, Psalm 135, Isaiah chapter 41, chapter 44, only the children of Israel were even recognized or known by Yahweh out of all of the other families of the earth. Amos 3.2 The plan described by Yahweh in the various books of the prophets was to scatter the children of Israel. During the time when they were scattered, the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled, that they were to become many nations, and then to bring them all back to himself, gathering them in Christ. And for that, we may cite Ezekiel chapter 34 and Micah, Chapter 4. Both the Old and the New Covenants were made explicitly with the house of Israel, including the house of Judah, Jeremiah chapter 31. With this, we must note the profession of Christ himself that he came only for those people, Matthew chapter 15. Only the children of Israel were ever the possession of Yahweh, and therefore where Paul speaks of redemption of the possession, we once again see that redemption in Christ only applies to those same people. And for that, we could cite Exodus 19, verse 5, Isaiah 43, 1. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 3. And only the same children of Israel had before had expectation in the Christ, meaning that only the Israelites ever had the promise of a Messiah, of a Redeemer, and therefore all of the promises in Christ are only relevant to those same Israelites. Hosea chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 50, Daniel chapter 9. Ancient history offers sufficient proof that the Phoenicians, the Trojans, the Danan Greeks, the Dorian Greeks, and those who descended from them, such as the original Macedonians, the Corinthians, these Ephesians, were all Israelites who had, at diverse times, departed from the main body of Israel. And that process began 
even before the time of Moses. And they continued to emigrate from Israel over the centuries subsequent to the Exodus. The later deportations of Israel and Judah produced the formation of the Germanic and related tribes, which eventually populated northern Europe. Whether mainstream denominational Christians understand the ancient history or not is immaterial. The only honest manner by which to interpret the words of Paul of Tarsus here is with the understanding that he is indeed addressing people who were descended from ancient Israelites, since it is only to such a people that any of these things which we have mentioned could possibly apply. The veracity of these assertions shall become even more evident as we proceed through this epistle. And we see that Paul used language which continues to demonstrate this same understanding. Ultimately, Paul concludes chapter 2 of the epistle in part by stating explicitly that the household of Yahweh is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles accounted Israel by tribes according to the flesh in the same manner that the prophets did and by seed meaning little, literal offspring in the same manner that the prophets did. If the denominational churches of today do not account Israel in that same manner, then they are deceiving themselves. But their error does not change the word of God. They do not have the authority to do that and they will have to account for their having scattered the sheep because they have not been gathering with Christ. And with this, we shall proceed where we left off last week with Ephesians chapter 1 with verse 15. And Paul says, Therefore, even I, having heard of your own faith in Prince Joshua and that which is for all the saints... Rendering this verse, the Christogenian New Testament had originally followed the text of the Novum Testamentum Grece, and the 27th and the New 28th version had the same reading. And they had the last clause to read, and the charity which is for all the saints. However, we have now amended our translation and have chosen instead to follow the older manuscripts the 3rd century papyrus P46, and the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Verse 16, therefore, even I, because that's how Paul addressed these people in verse 15, and after his digression concerning their faith, do not cease giving thanks concerning you, making mention in my prayers, and the Majority text adds the words of you. In order that the God of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, the Father of honor. Now this is important to what we're going to say about this passage. Yahshua Christ is not the subject. 
the God of our prince, the father of honor, is the subject of the statements which follow, would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in his knowledge, the eyes of your mind being illuminated for you to know what is the hope of his calling, the calling made by the God of our prince. What are the riches of the honor of his inheritance in the saints? The inheritance of that Old Testament God, the God of our prince, the father of honor. <laughs> Excuse me. To begin, the phrase, the eyes of your mind, is literally the eyes of your heart. The word cardia is hard, but it could also be the soul or mind. The Greeks believed that the heart was actually the fountain and seat of the thoughts, the passions, the desires. The beginning of wisdom, as it says in the Proverbs, is the knowledge of God. As it says in Proverbs chapter 9 from the Septuagint, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the counsel of saints is understanding. For to know the law is the character of a sound mind. Yet in relation to the promise and prophecy of a new covenant, it says in Jeremiah chapter 31, from verse 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Note that it doesn't say that they shall know Jesus in relation to this promise, but that they shall know Yahweh. It is the God of our prince, the father of honor, who is the subject of this verse in Ephesians, and not Jesus. Paul is not describing some new, different calling by Jesus, which differs from the calling prophesied in the Old Covenant by Yahweh. By referring to his calling in relation to Yahweh God the Father, Paul explains that this is that same calling of that same Old Testament God. And therefore, it is the same calling which we see in the prophets, where it speaks exclusively of the ancient children of Israel. As Christ said in John chapter 17, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that may they be one as we are one. Speaking of his inheritance, with that pronoun, Paul is again referring to God the Father. Only the tribes of Jacob Israel are the inheritance of Yahweh God. And where Paul says his, he refers to that same Old Testament God where he refers to his inheritance in the saints. In this same manner, Yahweh speaks in Deuteronomy chapter 32. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot 
of his inheritance. This is not some different New, New Testament inheritance, but as we see Christ acknowledge, he asks God to keep through the name of God those whom God has given him. This inheritance in the New Testament is the same inheritance referenced throughout the Old Testament. And Yahweh God himself defines it when he says that Jacob, Israel, only the tribes of Israel are the lot, the substance of his inheritance. In Jeremiah chapter 10, we see all of the other nations contrasted to the children of Israel. And it says from verse 14, Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder, referring to the fabricators of idols, those who operate a foundry, is confounded by the graven image. For his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the works of errors in the time of their visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The same admonishment is repeated nearly verbatim in Jeremiah chapter 51. Note that it does not say that all of these people of other nations, these worshipers of strange gods, will be converted to Christ. Rather, it says that all of these will perish in the time of their visitation, a reference to the righteous judgment of Yahweh God. In the modern age, forcing or enticing the other nations and races to accept a Jesus, which Jesus himself did not preach, will not change the predestined fate of those people of other races and nations. The children of Israel alone are Yahweh's portion and Yahweh's inheritance. An inheritance represents what is left of an estate. While Israel is the inheritance of Yahweh, Yahweh is also the inheritance of Israel. As it reads in Psalm 47, For Yahweh, most high, is terrible. He is the great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. As we had explained, presenting the earlier portions of this chapter, this is an interlocking relationship between Yahweh and Israel, which cannot be permeated or violated by anyone else. Yahweh himself having defined the boundaries of the relationship. Paul illustrates this same thing in an allegory concerning walls and enclosures in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And what is 
the exceeding greatness of his power for us who are believing, according to the operation of the might of his strength, and might and strength and power here are all synonyms. So you may see the various words interchanged in various translations. As Joshua Christ had said to those of the Judeans who rejected him, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, but you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The true gospel of Christ can only be heard by the people for whom it was predestined. Those denominational Christians who lay claim to a gospel for all of the alien peoples of the world are not preaching the true gospel of Christ. Even when those alien peoples of the world claim to love Jesus, they're not loving Jesus Christ. They're loving an idol who they have called Jesus. The reference to those who are believing refers to those of the world of Paul's time and the true gospel of Christ was to separate the wheat from the tares in the apostolic age. We will expound on that later in this series, Yahweh willing. Verse 20, which he produced in the Christ, having raised him from the dead and sat him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And the vision is an allegory which is first depicted by David in the 110th Psalm, where it says, Yahweh said unto my Lord, the first word being the tetragrammaton, the second word being the Hebrew word Adon. The translators did not properly distinguish them. Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It was repeated by Christ himself in contention with those who opposed him, where he said in Luke chapter 22, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. <laughs> One important purpose of Christ concerns the children of Israel, as it says of them in Luke chapter 1, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Therefore, where it says in that 110th Psalm that Yahweh said unto my Lord, sit now at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It says in the verses which follow, Yahweh shall send a rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Yahweh is sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The, 
the Lord at thy right hand, a reference to Christ, shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen or the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. This is the deliverance which the children of Israel await today. It is the same deliverance described in the Old Testament which the children of Israel continue to await today. And it is the deliverance which is described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and in Revelation chapters 19 and 20 and elsewhere. Verse 21, speaking again about Christ at the right hand of God. Over every realm, and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name being named, not only in this age, but in the future. We have some Greek notes here. The word for age was translated as world in the King James Version. We're actually going to talk about this word twice tonight. However, the Greek word, ahion, according to Liddell and Scott, is a period of existence. It's an age. It's a space of time, a long space of time, or a definite, predetermined space of time. And it does not refer to an object. It doesn't refer to a place. It doesn't refer to the planet. It doesn't refer to a state of existence. The word is purely temporal. It is never spatial, referring to space or objects or areas or places. The phrase translated here as future is a substantive, a group of words which are not nouns by themselves, but which are used as a noun, formed from a definite article and a participle form of the verb mellow. The verb mellow primarily means to indicate something that is about to be done or something that is about to happen. The phrase may have been translated, what is coming. The Apostle Peter, in other words, not only in this age, but in that one which is coming or in the one to come. The Apostle Peter had spoke in a similar manner of the resurrected Christ in 1 Peter chapter 3, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. We have seen Paul use the same language to describe Christ, which we have seen in the Psalms here in this epistle to the Ephesians. Here, Paul is using language which puts Christ on a footing with Yahweh God himself in verse 21, insisting that Christ is over every realm and authority and power and dominion and every name being named, not only in this age, but also in the future or in that which is to come. 
But this should be of no surprise to Christians, as Isaiah had prophesied of the Christ. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, henceforth, even forever. Perhaps three or even four years before this epistle was written, Paul had written 1 Timothy, charging Timothy that you keep this commandment spotless, irreproachable, until the manifestation of our Prince Yahshua Christ, which he will show in his own time. And he describes him as the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But Paul had written this epistle about 30 years before the apostle John had written the Revelation. And the only other place in Scripture where Christ is referred to in such a manner is Revelation chapter 17 and 19, where he is also called Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Since neither Yahweh nor the Messiah are described with the same language in the surviving books of the Old Testament or the Apocrypha, this shows that Paul had an understanding of Scripture which transcended the literal word and that he understood the greater meaning underlying both the need for and the nature of the Messiah. The children of Israel had rejected Yahweh as their king, and they wanted a fleshly king, 1 Samuel chapter 8. For this, Yahweh God eventually put them off in punishment. As he says in Hosea chapter 13, I gave thee a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The children of Israel were never supposed to have fleshly kings. However, ultimately, Yahweh shows his mercy upon Israel by incarnating himself as the man, Yahshua Christ, who ultimately shall rule over all Israel forever. Verse 22. And all things he placed under his seed. And it's given him a crown, or literally a head, the word being kephale, over all things in the assembly, which is his body, the fulfillment of that which all things in all are being fulfilled. And here Paul limits the legitimate scope of the phrase all things. He qualifies it to be a reference only to all things within the assembly, which is his body, terms which refer to the children of Israel collectively. 
In the Gospel, in Mark chapter 9, the apostles asked Christ, Why say the scribes that Elijah or Elias must first come? And Christ responds by saying, Elijah verily cometh first and restores all things. Yet, in the books of the prophets, the only mention of Elijah coming is in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the so-called restoration of all things is only a restoration of all things which were between Yahweh God and the children of Israel. There's no other restoration of all things. Paul will describe this restoration at length in Ephesians chapter 4. This same restoration is prophesied again in Isaiah chapter 49. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore, there's your restoration, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations that thou mayest be my salvation under the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, those nations ostensibly being the nations of Israel, that thou mayest be my salvation under the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, speaking of Christ, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, speaking to the children of Israel. And with this, we shall commence with Ephesians chapter 2. And you, being dead in transgressions and in your errors or sins, the Codex Vaticanus actually has desires, in which you had at one time walked, in accordance with the age of this society, in accordance with the ruler of the office of the air, and the spirit that is now operating within the sons of disobedience. As the Apostle John also attested, we know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5. The Greek word exousia is office here, but it may have been more literally translated as power or authority. 
The word can also mean to refer to an office or a magistracy. So the entire phrase may just as well be read as the King James Version has it. The prince of the power of the air. I don't know of any ancient context by which this reference to the power of the air can be easily comprehended. However, perhaps with Paul's own words elsewhere, and the help of a passage in the Wisdom of Solomon, it may indeed be understood. First, in the ancient Greek cosmology, because we can't confuse air with heaven, in the ancient Greek cosmology, there were assigned three layers of atmosphere. The air, or the lower atmosphere, was that atmosphere in which men exist and in which men breathe, but it was also the abode of the birds in the sky. Then the ether was the bright upper atmosphere that the Greeks distinguished from the air, and the heaven was the furthest most out, the abode of the stars and the planets, which the Greeks had actually pictured as a vault. In the Wisdom of Solomon, at verse 17.10, there is a rather enigmatic saying where it is speaking of the dread that would apparently overcome certain sorcerers who were described as being fettered with the bonds of a long night. There it says in Britain's translation that they died for fear, denying that they saw the air, which could of no side be avoided. Rather than denying that they saw the air, the Greek, the actual Greek words more appropriately say, refusing to look at the air. Now, that's not any less enigmatic. However, examining the context context of the chapter, where it is talking about these wicked men as they are fettered with the bonds of a long night. They're chained in darkness, right? Perhaps in that context, we can understand the reference to the air to refer to what we would call in our own idiom, the light of day. In the later verses of the same chapter, it says of the same wicked man, for the whole world shined with clear light, and none were hindered in their labor. Over them only, meaning the wicked men, was spread a heavy night, an image of that darkness, which should afterward receive them. But yet were they unto themselves more grievous than the darkness. While in that same book, in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapters 2, 5, and 7, there are uses of the same term for air, which lead us to believe that it indeed referred to the invisible atmosphere around us. Here in chapter 17, we are led to, to believe that 
it was also a reference to what we would call the light of day, as opposed to the image of darkness described as the bonds of a long night and a heavy night. As the Apostle John said of Christ, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Light referring to Christ, and darkness referring to certain wicked men. One other place where Paul mentions air is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, speaking of the anticipated second advent of the Christ, and he wrote, for if we believe that Yahshua had died and rose up in this manner, Yahweh, also through Yahshua, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we say to you by word of the prince, that we, the living, those left remaining until the coming of the prince, no way would come before those who have fallen asleep. Because the prince himself, with the command, by a chief messenger's voice, and with the trumpet of Yahweh, shall descend from heaven. And those dead among the number of the anointed shall rise up first. Then we, the living, who are remaining, at once with them, shall be carried off in clouds from meeting with prince, in the air, and in that manner always with the prince we shall be. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul should certainly not be taken too literally. The reference to clouds is very much a reference to clouds of people, as Paul also used that term in Hebrews chapter 12 of a cloud of witnesses. The reference to air being the gathering place of we, the living, then it is apparently a reference to the light of day, to the physical world in which we exist, to distinguish it from the invisible world of the spirit to which Paul refers elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and in Hebrews chapter 11. In that manner, Paul's reference to the ruler of the power of the air as a spirit operating within the sons of disobedience informs us that this wicked entity operates in this immediate world through wicked people. So it is that Yahshua Christ had referred to his adversaries collectively as the prince of this world. And in his epistle to the Colossians, Paul mentions the princes of this world, those who had crucified the Lord of glory. The sons of disobedience have a particular evil spirit which operates within them, just as the children of Israel have a spirit which comes from Yahweh their God. The spirit operating within the sons of disobedience does not come from God. So we read along these same lines in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets, embodied spirits in living people, are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit, every person, 
every embodied spirit, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now, already it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you, the Spirit of God, than he that is in the world. The spirits of the wicked people. Once again, these are the wheat and the tares of the parable of Christ, which, by which the gospel was to divide them in the apostolic age. If the sons of disobedience had a spirit that did not come from Yahweh, then they are bastards. They are planted by the devil which is collectively also those fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. And they shall be torn up as Yahshua Christ had testified, that every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 15. These have no opportunity of being converted to Christianity. And among them, are the Jews, who ever since the time of the Apostle John have denied that Jesus is the Christ. As a digression, it is tempting to think that Paul was speaking prophetically of the prince of the power of the air as the ruler of the airwaves. Since the Jew has come to control all of the world's electronic media as soon as the ability was discovered by men. It is tempting enough to mention, but the practical application which we have offered here should prevail, and we shall leave it at that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom we also had at one time conducted ourselves in the desires of our flesh, acting out of the wills of the flesh and of the thoughts, and we were by nature children of wrath, even like the others. And here we see that where Paul says, by nature, he's not referring to genetics or by birth. By saying we, ourselves, and our flesh, Paul exhibits that he is not merely talking about the former paganism of these Ephesian Christians. Rather, he is talking about the ancient disobedience of the Israelites before the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations and the destruction of the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah as a result of their sins. The analogy applies to the Ephesians, descended from the ancient Israelites, as well as to Paul, who was ostensibly descended from the remnant of Benjamin, which returned to Judea with Zerubbabel. Therefore, the reference to children of wrath can only refer to the Old Testament Canaanites. Paul uses a similar phrase, 
of the Edomites of Judea in Romans chapter 9, who were in part descended from Esau's Canaanite wives. First, we shall read from Exodus chapter 23, where Yahweh had warned the Israelites what would happen if they did not do with the Canaanites as he had commanded. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert under the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Then, in Numbers chapter 33, Yahweh warned them again, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Well, the children of Israel did fail to do as they were commanded. And we read concerning a period some decades later in Judges chapter 2. And an angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Boshim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I have brought you unto the land which I swore, swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And the rest of the history of the children of Israel, through nearly 800 years and all the way down to the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, was one of the national struggle with sin on account of this predicament, until they were metaphorically put out of the sight of Yahweh God. It is of this period that Paul speaks where he says, we were by nature children of wrath, even like the others, all throughout the history of the old kingdoms of Israel and Judah. However, the major theme of most of the surviving books of the prophets includes accounts of the sin of Israel and Judah, then of Yahweh's putting away the houses of Israel and Judah for that sin, and then ultimately of the promised reconciliation of those same houses of Israel and Judah in Christ. And therefore Paul says in verse 4, But Yahweh, being rich in compassion, because of that great love of his with which he has loved us. And we, being dead in transgressions, are made alive with the anointed, or with Christ. And then Paul makes a parenthetical statement. In favor, you are being preserved. All of this can only apply to Old Testament Israel. Once again, 
those being dead in transgressions, could only be the children of Israel. As for example, it was said to the Israelites of the northern kingdom in Hosea chapter 13, when Ephraim spoke trembling, meaning when he was humble, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they, sin no, now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols, according to their own understanding. All of it, the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore shall they be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. Yet I, Yahweh, thy God, from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Only the children of Israel ever had the law. Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 and therefore only Israel could be dead in transgressions since as we read in 1 John chapter 3 verse 4 sin is transgression of the law and where there is no law as we read in Romans 5:13 sin is not imputed so only the children of Israel can ever be imagined to be in transgression. And when the children of Israel sin, they are dead in transgression. But, as we see in 1 John chapter 2, they have a propitiation in Christ. Verse 6. after Paul says that we being dead in transgression are made alive with the anointed and are raised together and are seated together in the heavenly places with Christ Joshua. In order that he would exhibit in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his favor in kindness to us among the number of Christ Joshua. In Ephesians 1.21, in the King James Version, the Greek word ahion was translated as world. However, here it is correctly translated in the plural as ages. And I want to talk about this word world once more. In all fairness, in 1611, the word world apparently did not have the same connotation as it does today. Checking a resource such as the American Heritage College Dictionary, which attempts to trace the meanings of many English words back to their earliest roots, the word world evidently evolved from two ancient words meaning the age of man. The word were for man and old for age. 
writing his treatise on the Jews and their lives, not even 70 years before the King James Version was translated, Martin Luther had said in chapter 13 of his work, speaking of Christ, that it is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that all the Gentiles in all the world accepted without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them. The Gentiles in all the world have accepted Christ, is what Luther was speaking of. Yet Luther was fully aware that Christianity was, for the most part, restricted to Europe. And Luther was fully aware of all of the alien peoples and strange religions beyond Europe. In the 14th century, 200 years before Luther, China ran the Jesuits out of the country. Luther especially knew of the ever-threatening Turks, who were Muslims, who had been attacking in the Balkans and Eastern Europe and at war with the people of Venice for a hundred years before Luther's time, or better. In the Balkans, they were probably there for 200 years before Luther's time. So Luther's view of the word, of the word world, was not cognate to the concept of the globe or the planet and everyone on it, or his view of the Gentiles certainly did not include the alien peoples like the Turks and the Arabs and the Chinese. Many other comments which Luther made display those same ideas, while at times he also seemed to have had some confusion, having been educated as a Catholic universalist. But to him, if the Gentiles in all the world accepted Christianity voluntarily, that could only mean the nations of Europe. Verse 8, for in favor you are being preserved through faith, and this, Yahweh's gift, is not of yourselves. Not from works, lest anyone would boast. For his work we are, having been established among the number of Christ Yahshua for good works, which Yahweh before prepared in order that we would walk in them. The phrase in verse 9 where it says, not from works, may have been written, not from rituals. We have explained many times, and especially in our recent presentation of Galatians chapter 2, that using the word works in relation to the law, Paul was usually referring to the rituals of the law. This has caused many readers of Paul's letters much confusion. Because in his epistle to the Galatians and elsewhere, Paul had, rather collectly, maintained that the works of the law, meaning the ceremonial ordinances and rituals, were done away with in Christ. Yet throughout history, 
few of his readers have understood what Paul really meant by that phrase, works of the law. However, the term works of the law in relation to the rituals and ceremonial ordinances of the Old Testament also appears in the Greek translations of the Septuagint and in the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are all contemporary to the time of Paul, relatively. It should go without saying that Paul very persistently upheld the Christian need to keep the commandments of the law. Many commentators point out that James's statement at the end of chapter 2 in his single epistle, where he says that faith without works is dead, was made an answer to the teachings of Paul in epistles such as Galatians. We would only concede that it may have been made in answer to some misconceptions about the teachings of Paul. According to the histories of Flavius Josephus, James, that same James, was murdered in Judea right around the same time that Paul was sitting in Rome writing this epistle to the Ephesians. Since James, whom Josephus had called the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, was slain by the Sadducees as Lucius Albinus was about to assume the office of procurator of Judea in 62 AD. The epistle to the Galatians was evidently written while Paul was in Antioch, and therefore, and it's several years before this, perhaps, 55 AD, and therefore James may have seen it, but James could not have had an opportunity to see this epistle, and he may not have necessarily seen any of Paul's other epistles except possibly for Hebrews, written in Caesarea perhaps about three years before James's death. If we had written not from rituals here, which we wanted to, at the beginning of verse 9, which is certainly Paul's intention, we would have lost the wordplay with the mention of good works in the verse which follows, which was also certainly Paul's intention. Paul's intention. In any event, Paul is informing the Ephesians that their salvation is not from works. Their salvation is not from anything that they themselves may do. And when he teaches on this same topic in Galatians, he is referring explicitly to the rituals and ceremonial ordinances required by the Old Testament law. But here he also says that the very purpose for which the body of Christ is established by God is for good works. And for that reason, Christians are expected to walk in them. So Paul would certainly, while people may have been confused over what Paul taught, Paul himself would certainly have agreed with James 
that faith without works is dead. And Paul says in verse 11, on which account you must remember that at one time you, the nations in the flesh, who are the so-called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised made by hand in the flesh, because you had at that time been apart from Christ, having been alienated from the civic life of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, not having hope and in a society without Yahweh. And that phrase, without Yahweh, is from the single Greek word, atheos, which literally means without God. The King James Version translation of this passage, verse 11, is ridiculous in that it has Paul calling the Ephesians former Gentiles. What the hell is a former Gentile? If that were so, Paul would not continually refer to them as Gentiles throughout this epistle, throughout the rest of this epistle. In none of Paul's epistles do we see the concept of a former Gentile. It's utterly absurd. Rather, the phrase at one time in verse 11 refers to the time mentioned in verse 12 where it says at that time and both are a reference to the time during which the children of Israel were alienated from Yahweh their God for their sin which we had just read in the verses prior to these and which we also see in verse 12 but in verse 12 the translation in the King James Version is even worse. Here, Paul is stating in part that at one time you, because you had at that time been apart from Christ, and in between the clauses we see a short digression where Paul explains something about who they are so that we may see how they fit into the purpose of God's will for Israel. The Ephesians were not Gentiles in the flesh, and they were not formerly Gentiles, because Paul was not trying to make them into Jews, and because he continued to call them Gentiles throughout this epistle three or four times. However, the Greek word, of course, actually means nations, and you can't be a former nation. Rather, these Ephesians were certainly some of the descendants of the ancient tribes of Israel, and therefore they were among the nations in the flesh according to the promises made to Abraham that his seed would become many nations and inherit the world. 
Paul described the same thing in a much greater length in his earlier epistle to the Romans. In Romans chapter 4, where he had told the Romans that Abraham was their forefather. And among other things, he then said, Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society, but through righteousness of faith. So the promise remains to the offspring of Abraham, and it was not for anyone else. And Paul continues, For if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. So circumcision is no longer a sign of the promise, because circumcision was a part of the law. For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, for in favor you are being preserved, as Paul tells the Ephesians here, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring. Not to that of the law only, those of the so-called circumcision, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Those Israelites were cast off from the presence of Yahweh and discontinued circumcision. Just as it is written that a father of many nations, I have made you before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing, who contrary to expectation in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, how is that? According to the declaration, as Paul says, thus your offspring will be Paul says that Abraham's seed became many nations. And the universalist denominational churches twist that into the lie that many nations somehow became Abraham's seed. But Yahweh God is not a liar, and his word continues in spite of those liars, as Paul had also taught. As it says in Hosea chapter 4 of the children of Israel, who were being alienated from Yahweh their God at that time. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim, all of the symbols and institutions of the kingdom. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, a type for Christ, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. That word fear meaning awe. So according to the word of God, having lost all of the symbols and institutions of their kingdom, we cannot expect them to have maintained the associated rituals or customs such as circumcision. But the Old Testament histories concerning Israel had already made it clear 
that they had returned to paganism and had already abandoned many of these things. In the later days, returning to their God, they must return to him through Christ. Here, Paul, where he is telling the Ephesians that they are the nations in the flesh, in much the same way that he had also earlier told the Corinthians that same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is informing them that these things which are written in the prophets are being fulfilled in them. Therefore, at the end of this chapter, he informs them that the body of Christ is established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We shall repeat the passage in question to discuss other aspects of it. On which account, you must remember that at one time you, the nations in the flesh, the real seed of Abraham, who are the so-called uncircumcised, they were put off in punishment, by the so-called circumcised made by hand in the flesh, because you had at that time been apart from Christ, having been alienated from the civic life of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, not having hope, and in the society without Yahweh. So where Paul calls the Ephesians the nations in the flesh, he is informing them that they are the seed of Abraham as he informed the Galatians in many other ways, and also the Romans, and also the Corinthians, where he makes references to circumcision and uncircumcision. By Paul's time, the distinctions had become meaningless in distinguishing the children of Israel. Those of the nations put off from Yahweh had discontinued the practice, but they were still Israelites according to the promise and according to the flesh. But also, by Paul's time, by Paul's time among those of the Judeans who maintained the practice, were many Edomites and other Canaanites who were the enemies of Yahweh God and could never inherit the promises regardless of their keeping the law or the circumcision. That's what Paul really means in passages such as these. We may learn this with all certainty from Romans chapter 9, that these people in Judea were Edomites, that they were Edomites as demonstrated in Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35, and we may ascertain it in detail from the histories of Flavius Josephus. And once we realize those things, it is further evident in many other scriptures, Luke 11, John 8, Revelation 2, Revelation 3, so Paul insinuates that the circumcision of the flesh is artificial. He is vindicated where true circumcision is described by Yahweh God as he beckons the children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 4. And it says, Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh 
and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. The emanation is made of all Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10 where the word of Yahweh says to them, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Paul summarized some of the concepts presented here in Colossians chapter 2, where he said, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power in whom you also are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the circumcision of Christ is not made with hands. We'll get back to circumcision momentarily. Where we have translated the phrase, having been alienated. The King James Version has a very dishonest rendering where it has being aliens, and there is a significant difference. Aliens were strangers to you in the first place. People that are alienated are people who were put off from you who were estranged from you. They were made strangers. The Greek word, apolotrio, Strong's number 526, apolotrio, appears only here, and in Ephesians 4.18 and Colossians 1.21 in the New Testament. According to Liddell and Scott, it means to estrange or to alienate. The King James Version treats the word properly in the other passages, Ephesians 4 and Colossians chapter 1, but somehow here it renders the verb as a noun. But as the King James Version translates this passage, one would think that perfect strangers, those who had never been associated with ancient Israel, could now somehow become the church. However, the entire premise of the modern denominational churches, as well as the historically universalist churches, crumbles when the actual context of Paul's epistle is examined. That is because one can only be estranged or alienated if one had been a part of something in the first place. That is because the fact that Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the new covenant having been promised for one particular race of people is the very foundation of the apostles and prophets upon which here Paul attests that the body of Christ is built later in this same chapter. A greater promise which not only verifies this interpretation, but which also both foresees and describes what had happened to the children of Israel in antiquity, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, 
This is right after the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience are transmitted to the children of Israel. When all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, and shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart and with all thy soul that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion on thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out under the outmost parts of heaven, from there will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from there will he fetch thee, and Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart. And the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. For all of these same reasons, as the Israelites were put off in punishment by Yahweh their God, where Hosea also portrays them as being, quote-unquote, alienated from the civic life of Israel, as Paul says here. Subsequent generations of the then-pagan tribes of Israel had become strangers of the covenants of the promise because they lost their identity in their captivity and their subsequent wandering. But this happened because they were alienated from God and not because they were aliens in the first place. That is why they were lost sheep, according to Ezekiel, and lost sheep, according to Christ himself. Returning to Yahweh their God in Christ, he circumcises their hearts, as promised in Deuteronomy and as explained by Paul of Tarsus here and elsewhere, as Paul also taught in Romans 2.29, where he said that circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not in writing, of which approval is not from men, but from Yahweh. For all of this, Paul speaks of reconciliation in verse 16, as even the King James Version had to translate the corresponding Greek word. The context proves our translations and our understanding of their translations, of these translations, to be correct. Verse 13, but now you, among 
the number of Yahshua Christ, who at one time, being far away, had become near by the blood of the Christ. The children of Israel, in captivity and in their subsequent wanderings, were far away from Yahweh their God, both physically and spiritually during this time. As the word of Yahweh says in Hosea chapter 5, they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Likewise, speaking of those same circumstances and people, it says in Amos chapter 8, And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, and shall not find it. In Micah chapter 4, another portrait of that same punishment of Israel is found, but with the promise of reconciliation. In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, the children of Israel, in captivity, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. This is the fate of the Israel which Yahweh had alienated, but which would be reconciled to him in Christ. Verse 14, Ephesians chapter 2. For he is our peace, as Isaiah prophesied of the child being born, who has made both one, and having broke down the middle wall of the enclosure, the hostility in his flesh, having annulled the law of commandments and ordinances, in order that he would establish the two with himself into one new man, making peace. In the Messianic prophecy, in which Joshua, the high priest from the time of the building of the second temple, is used as a type for Christ, we read from Zechariah chapter 3, And the angel of Yahweh protested unto, unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, if thou wilt walk in thy way, in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then shalt thou also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, meaning Christ. 
Here Paul is evidently using the temple as a paradigm for the body of Christ, that those who were priests and employed in the service to Yahweh were permitted into the inner courts, but all others were confined to the outer courts. Thus, Paul seems to make an analogy of the circumcised Israelites of the Judeans and the uncircumcised Israelites of the nations who were separated by a middle wall, although they were all Israelites in the body of Christ. The reference to the two. to make, establish the two with himself into one new man. The reference to the two could only refer to the uncircumcised and the circumcised of Israel, those far away and those near. And Paul is stating that they are now one in Christ. Yahshua Christ himself makes a similar analogy in another way in John chapter 10, and he says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. This would also be the fulfillment of the prophecy of the two sticks found in Ezekiel chapter 37. That phrase, middle wall of the enclosure, separates the two groups of Israelites, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The middle wall of the enclosure, however, consists of the hostility in his flesh. And it's broken down when he annulled the, the law of commandments in ordinances, which enabled Christ and the apostles and the remnant in Judea to be made one with the children of the long ago dispersed Israelites who were not circumcised. And again, verse 16, reconcile both in one body to Yahweh through the cross having slain that hostility by it, and having come, he announced the good message, peace to you who were far away, and peace to those near. The hostility spoken of here is the hostility between Yahweh and Israel, which is first mentioned in verse 14, where Paul said that he had broken down the middle wall of the enclosure, the hostility in his flesh. This is the analogy which Paul is making here. The middle wall of the enclosure. When it was broken down, those on each side of it became one. The barriers between those that are remnant who continued in the circumcision and the law, who are those near, and those of the captivity who were Israelites, but who were pagans, who were those 
far away. The hostility itself is only the wall, and that is in the flesh of Christ, which is the alienation of far away Israel from Yahweh their God for their sins. As Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7, and as it is evident in Daniel chapter 9, Yahweh God came as a man and died in order to fulfill the law so that he could be reconciled to Israel apart from the law so that Israel would not have to be judged by the law. There were specific laws because Israel, the nation, and Judah, the nation, as a wife, had committed adultery, that they could not be reconciled to Yahweh unless he came as a man and died in order to fulfill the law. But only the middle wall of the enclosure has been removed. And the enclosure itself is the word of Yahweh God, which keeps the children of Israel, as well as he himself, holy and apart from the rest of the world. Whether it be the inner court or the outer court, in the kingdom of Yahweh, only Israelites may enter into the temple of God. The New Jerusalem of the closing chapters of the Revelation also depicts this same thing, where the gates to the city contain the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And if you're not from one of those tribes, you're not getting into that city. Those who served God in the old temple were admitted into the inner court. That's the analogy Paul is making. Everybody else was kept to the outer court, the middle wall of the temple. The middle wall of the enclosure is broken down. The hostility in the flesh of Christ, that's an analogy that Paul is making. The enclosure itself still stands, and only Israelites are inside of that enclosure. Verse 19. So therefore, I'm sorry, verse 18. Because of him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now this middle wall of the enclosure is often mistaken for the veil of the temple. Access to the Father is through the veil of the temple, which Paul also calls the second veil in Hebrews chapter 9. It's not to be confused with the middle wall of the enclosure. Paul explained to this epistle to the Hebrews that the veil still exists, and Christ entered through it for us, of which the veil of the innermost sanctum of the temple, the so-called Holy of Holies, was a type. Verse 19. So therefore, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household or family of Yahweh. That Greek word, paroikos, 
is sojourners. Sojourners here. The King James Version has foreigners. That's another dishonest translation. That's plainly dishonest. Paroikos certainly does not mean a foreigner in this context. Now, forms of the word paroikos appear in Luke, in Acts, in Hebrews, and in 1 Peter. In Hebrews 11, verse 9, Paul uses the verb form of this same word, where he wrote of Abraham that by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Jacob and Isaac, the heirs with him of the same promise. Liddell and Scott define the related word, the noun paroikia, as sojourning in a foreign land. Citing the New Testament as their source, that is the sense in which Paul uses this word, paroikos, of the alienated Israelites who, after being put off by Yahweh their God, according to his word in the Old Testament, went and dwelt in other lands. In that manner, were the promises to Abraham transmitted through Jacob fulfilled that their offspring would become many nations. From Paul's perspective, sojourners, these sojourners, are emigrants, not immigrants. You can only call a sojourner a foreigner if a strange person comes to you and dwells in your land. But Paul speaking to these Ephesians, they're not coming to Judea to live in Judea. They can't be called foreigners. They are Israelites who had gone and settled somewhere else. And these people are in Ephesus. Being Israelites, having settled abroad, they're not foreigners. They are sojourners, people who have left to settle in a foreign land. The Ephesians were not immigrating into Palestine to join the Judeans, so they can't be called foreigners. They were a people who were alienated and not aliens. They were ancient Israelites sojourning abroad as were the rest of the nations descended from Abraham in Europe. Paul is telling them that they now had reconciliation in Christ. Again, to reconcile both in one body to Yahweh. As, for example, we see it foretold in Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren, that did not bear, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. Comparing the Israelites of the dispersions, the uncircumcised, they are the desolate. 
that were put off by Yahweh. Those of the circumcised of the remnant in Judea. They are the married wife. Yahweh's telling the barren, those children of Israel, the desolate, who were put off from his sight. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Although they were being punished, we see that they are going to be greatly multiplied. And in this, in the punishment of Israel, are the promises to Abraham fulfilled, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4. All of this had happened when the Israelites migrated, the Israelites of the dispersions had migrated west into Europe, and many of them also went into the east, into Asia, over many centuries before Christ. Break forth on the right and on the left. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. And they certainly did. They even forgot who they were. And thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is, is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called when the children of Israel cover the whole earth. For, the, for Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, the desolate that was cast off from Yahweh. But with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. Therefore Paul concludes that the household of Yahweh God is, in verse 20, being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, Yahshua Christ being the cornerstone himself, in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple with the prince, in which you also are being built together into an abode of Yahweh. In spirit, as the apostle Peter had written, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The word for cornerstone, acrogoniahias, appears elsewhere in the New Testament only in 1 Peter 2, 6. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. 
it literally means one at the extreme angle. Here it is cornerstone, but the actual word for stone doesn't appear in Greek. Properly, the phrase should be read, Yahshua Christ being the apex himself. That's the purpose of the cornerstone, the capstone. Brenton also translated the word cornerstone in the Septuagint in Isaiah chapter 28. So the body of Christ is built upon the apostles and the prophets. The prophets foretold what would happen to the children of Israel. And the apostles sought out lost Israel in order to reconcile them to their God with the announcement of the gospel. Christ himself, in Luke chapter 4, quotes Isaiah in reference to the purpose of the gospel where he said, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and a restoration of sight to the blind, to send off the broken with release, to proclaim a year acceptable by Yahweh. Doing so, Christ was quoting Isaiah chapter 61, where it says, The Spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. The gospel is only for those people. That is the gospel in the body of Christ established on the apostles and the prophets. The meek are the meek of the children of Israel. When they hear the true gospel, they are humbled. The brokenhearted are the children of Israel. When they hear the true gospel, they realize the gravity of their national sin. The captives are the children of Israel. When they hear the true gospel, they realize that they are the children of Zion taken captive by the Assyrians and now by mystery Babylon. Those in prison are those same captives. When Christ cited this passage in Luke, he also evidently borrowed a line from further up in the scroll, since the words, to send off the broken with release, are from Isaiah 58, 6, not from Isaiah 61. And the broken have release, or liberty, only in Christ. The restoration of the sight to the blind are to those same children of Israel who is blind but my servant and it is time their sight was restored that's the purpose of the true gospel to see that those receiving it today of those nations descended from the seed of Abraham were indeed the ancient children of Israel that sight can only be restored by hearing the true gospel, that of the apostles and the prophets, which has not been taught 
since the days of Paul of Tarsus. No church for 2,000 years has taught these things until British Israel started to teach them with partial revelation almost 200 years ago. So the blind are still blind because they haven't yet heard the true gospel. Any church which is built on anything other than the apostles and the prophets is not the church of Christ. Thank you for listening, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night, the Camp of the Saints, revisited, and a few other discussions.